Well, good morning, and welcome again, welcome again to Prairie View Christian Church. We appreciate you joining us here in the room and online as well. Now, today is week four of our problematic Proverbs sermon series, and for those who haven't been here the past few weeks, the idea is that we are examining common sayings of cultural wisdom with both an affirming and a critical eye. We're affirming the good parts of these sayings that can be accepted by believers in Jesus, while also being honest about the bad parts that we Christians may do well to reject. So in week one, we discussed the phrase, you only live once. Week two was, the Lord helps those who help themselves. And last week was, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. So with all three of these sayings, we've tried to pick out the meat and leave the bones. We'll do the same thing this morning with our fourth problematic proverb, and that phrase is this, follow your heart, follow your heart. So open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. That'll be one of the last passages that we read this morning, but if there's one piece of scripture you take away from this sermon, it might be the best one. So Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, feel free to follow along as we go. We'll have verses on the screen as well, but before we go any further, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And as, as Joshua mentioned in his opening prayer, uh, it's been a big week, uh, both in the life of our nation and even the life of this church, uh, looking back on what's happened in the past and looking ahead uh, to what the future could hold. Uh, and so, Lord, we lift up all those requests to you. We lift up these people to you. Uh, Lord, I ask you to continue to watch over our church uh, in this season that we're in. Uh, you have taken such great care of us uh, over this past year, especially with all the chaos, but we ask you to continue doing that uh, as hopefully we get a little bit closer to the end uh, of this crisis that we're in. Thank you for providing for us as a church. I pray that uh, we would be good stewards of all you've given to us and that you'd continue to meet our needs. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would unify us as a church, even though we're more scattered than we typically would be, and more out of touch than we would like to be, I pray that you would unify us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that you would sanctify us, uh, grow us in holiness and maturity. Uh, Let the crucible of this time that we're in, the pressure, the heat, the hardship of 2020 and 2021, I pray that it would grow us and shape us in ways that might be painful now, uh, but ultimately are are good for us in the long run. And I pray that our worship today would be honoring to you. Uh, I pray that for the sermon. I pray that for uh, the music we'll hear after the sermon, uh, that everything we do and say here at this church today would be not just good for us, but would be honoring to you. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've got a lot to discuss this morning, so let's jump right in. What wisdom might we find in the phrase, follow your heart? Well, first, this saying rightly acknowledges that there is something special, something unique, something even a bit mysterious about the human heart. In its most basic and technical sense, 
Your heart is a blood pump. It distributes blood throughout the rest of your body. But deep down, we know that our hearts, while they are incredibly important organs in just the physical sense, the heart is not just another organ. There's a reason nobody says, follow your kidney, or follow your gallbladder, or follow your liver. There's something different, something bigger, something deeper, something more significant going on in the human heart besides just pumping blood. Those in the ancient world, the world in which the Bible was produced, recognize this. The heart was considered the all-encompassing seat of one's identity, personality, intellect, memory, emotions, desire, and will. While ancients may not have known as much about the heart or the brain as we do in the technical sense, they still knew it was important, and they were right. The Bible recognizes the importance of the heart as well. In fact, you might be surprised if you sat down and really studied, really considered just how often the Bible talks about hearts. We read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is a really big, thick book. And you only have to read the first six chapters before you already see God talking about hearts and the corruption of human hearts. But then you also read a passage like Exodus 35, verse 29. This is when the Israelites are wandering in the desert outside of Egypt. They are building the tabernacle, which was basically the portable temple where they would worship. We read there, all the men and women, the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. So in Genesis, we read that our hearts are sinful. In Exodus, we see that our hearts are involved in the act of worship. So we're already seeing that our hearts are pretty complex. Deuteronomy chapter 6, one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament commands the newly redeemed nation of Israel to love the Lord your God with all your heart. David is described as a man after God's own heart. And he's anointed king over Israel, not because he was impressive on the outside, but because the Lord looks on what? The Lord looks on the heart. Some of the Old Testament's grandest promises revolve around our hearts. Jeremiah 31 promises that someday God's disobedient people would have God's law written on their hearts. And that in that day, they would finally obey. We read another passage, Ezekiel 36. It promises that God's stubborn people will be given new hearts that love God, rather than hard hearts that rebel against him. Jesus himself talks about the heart frequently. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. We read Matthew 12 last week, where Jesus says, Out of the abundance of the heart, 
the mouth speaks. In Acts chapter 2, those who hear the Apostle Peter preach about Jesus' death and resurrection repent of their sin and are baptized. They did so because when they heard that sermon, they were cut to the heart. And finally, Romans chapter 10, another passage that we mentioned briefly last week. The Apostle Paul writes that if one believes in his heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, he will be saved. It's all over the place in the Bible. That's just a quick sampling of some of the most well-known examples. The point is that you don't have to be an ancient philosopher. You don't have to be a student of scripture to know there's something special about the heart. Humans seem to intuitively understand this. I mean, just think of all the other sayings that we use. When we're burnt out, we may say, you know, my heart's just not in it. When we get dumped, we say that they broke my heart. When we're uncertain about something, we say, I know it in my head, but I just don't feel it in my heart. So one good thing that comes from this problematic proverb, follow your heart, is that it rightly recognizes that the human heart isn't just for pumping blood. There is something meaningful there, even if it doesn't show up in an x-ray, a CAT scan, or an MRI. It's hard to explain, but we know it's true. Second, this saying, follow your heart, may have some merit to it when it comes to decision-making. In some ways, it's similar to other sayings that we know. Sayings like, trust your gut, or listen to your conscience. There may really be something to trusting your gut. A recent article in Scientific American reports that there is an often overlooked network of neurons lining our guts so extensive that some scientists have nicknamed it our second brain. That's why I try to keep mine just a little bit bigger than necessary. More brain power. The point is that in a way we don't fully understand, there could be some healthy, God-given instincts buried in our guts. There may be something to listening to your conscience as well. The Apostle Paul takes the conscience of believers quite seriously. He talks about it in the book of Romans, book of 1 Corinthians. Thomas Aquinas, one of the most important theologians who ever lived, defined the conscience as a man's judgment of himself according to God's judgment of him. He said it was part of our practical reason. And as the Protestant reformer Martin Luther was commanded to recant his writings against the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church in his day and age, he refused. And he said this, My conscience is captive to the word of God. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Martin Luther listened to his conscience. He followed his heart. He trusted his gut. And as a result, he changed the church and changed the world for the better. So there really is some good that can come from following your heart. It's more than just a blood pump. And following it, 
or on a related note, trusting your gut, listening to your conscience, might really be helpful in making decisions that aren't clearly laid out in Scripture. It may help you wisely avoid danger. It may help you practice discernment in assessing really difficult situations. It may help you find passions and gifts and skills unique to you that you enjoy, that you're good at, that you care about, and that you can use for God's glory. Not everyone is cut out for every difficult thing in this world. And that's okay. We all have different personalities. We all have different gifts. But there are things in this world that are really, really hard. That are really, really messy. That really need to be done. And sometimes you need to find the right person. The one who has a special heart for it. If it's going to be done well. And praise God that he has created those people. But, and you knew this part was going to come, there are also problems with this proverb. So what can go wrong with this phrase, follow your heart, if we take it too far? Well, following our hearts can go wrong when we assume that our hearts, or our guts, or our consciences, are always perfect guides. Remember what we read from Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. God assessed humanity as having sin in our hearts. And remember those Old Testament promises to God's people. How someday he would write his law on their hearts. And even give them new hearts. Well, that seems to imply that something is wrong with the old ones. One of the most important biblical passages on the human heart is Jeremiah chapter 17, starting in verse 9. God says, speaking through Jeremiah, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of of his deeds. In Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 23, Paul describes humanity's sinful hearts as foolish and darkened. He says in 1 Timothy 4 verse 2, Titus chapter 1 verse 15 that there are false teachers out there whose consciences are seared, whose consciences are defiled. As sinners, our hearts, our guts, they're not just imperfect guides. They can be deceptive. And they can even be destructive guides. Christians throughout history have warned that our hearts are not sufficient guides for life in and of themselves. Augustine famously said that human hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Restless until they find their rest in God. Missing something. Incomplete apart from God. He went on to argue that our hearts need to be reformed by God's grace because they naturally go in the wrong direction. They need to be pointed in the right direction towards God if they're going to be worth following. 
It's only when our hearts are changed by God and directed toward God that the right words and the right actions will follow. Theologian John Calvin argued that a sense of deity, a sense of God's existence, is indelibly engraved on the human heart. That could be his way of referring to our conscience. We just have this innate sense of right and wrong that doesn't seem to go away even if we believe or don't believe in God. But the problem is that these consciences, our hearts, our guts, are corrupted by sin. That's why the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter advised this to believers. He said, make not your own judgments or consciences your law or the maker of your duty. There is a dangerous error grown too common in the world that a man is bound to do everything which his conscience tells him is the will of God and that every man must obey his conscience as if it were the lawgiver of the world. But indeed, it is not ourselves, but God that is our lawgiver. An erring conscience is not to be obeyed, but to be better informed. Our hearts are only reliable insofar as, like Martin Luther, they are captive to the word of God. Our hearts must be changed by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ shaped and molded by the Holy Spirit before they are worth following. So contrary to the message of many of the most famous Disney movies, following your heart isn't always a good idea. Sometimes it can lead you astray. Adolf Hitler is rightly considered history's greatest villain. And how did he get there? He followed his sinful heart. He trusted his gut. He listened to his conscience. And it led him down some absolutely horrible paths. How many times have we heard stories of a man or a woman leaving a spouse and leaving a child to have an affair because they followed their heart? In both cases, you cannot question the person's sincerity. But sincerity is not enough if you are sincerely wrong. Following your heart is not wise. And it can even destroy you and destroy others if your heart is corrupted by sin and untouched by God's grace. So while the saying isn't necessarily all bad, it's not necessarily all good either. You're correct to sense that your heart is more than just a blood pump. And there may be something to be said for trusting your gut or listening to your conscience as you make some decisions and pursue some interests, some passions, some skills. But be careful. Because left to itself, your heart is not infallible. In and of itself, it is fallen. And thus, it is an insufficient guide. But thankfully, there is a problem, solution to this problem for sinners. When we understand the deception, the sickness, 
the restlessness that our hearts have fallen into, we cry out to God to transform our hearts by his grace and form them by his word and shape them by his spirit. We see David do that in Psalm 51, starting in verse 10. This passage is written after David has committed a heinous sin. He's destroyed people around him. He's destroyed his family. In a way, he's even destroyed himself. But David says in Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 17, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When we see our hearts for what they really are, deceived, desperately sick, foolish, darkened, restless, when we repent of our sin and ask God to save us, he does. We repent of our sin and ask him to save us, knowing that God himself has a heart for sinners. So much so that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. We read in Hebrews 10, verse 22, that it's thanks to who Jesus is, it's thanks to what Jesus has done, that we can draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. It's because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that we can be reconciled to God. That we no longer have to be subject to the tyranny of our sinful hearts, but instead following the one who has redeemed them. Look at Psalm 24, starting in verse 3. Another Psalm of David. David says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. In us, we do not have what it takes to ascend the hill of the Lord. Because we have followed our sinful hearts, we are unworthy of standing in his presence on our own. But Jesus is worthy. Jesus is uncorrupted by sin the way you and I have been. He's the possessor of a heart of perfect love, perfect unity, and perfect obedience to the Father. The kind of heart that you and I don't have. And by faith in his sacrificial death on the cross, by faith in his victorious resurrection, we can be one with him. We can ascend the hill of the Lord. We can stand in God's eternal presence with pure hearts. As we close, that final passage, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Perhaps one of the most well-known portions of the book of Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight 
your paths. We trust God with our hearts, but we do not follow them or lean on them for understanding. We don't have to look inward for wisdom and truth and meaning. We don't have to look inward for all the answers to life's problems. We look upward at the God who we can now call our Father. And until we do that, our hearts will be restless. They'll be deceived. They'll be desperately sick. They'll be foolish and darkened until they find their rest in him. There's something better out there than following your heart. Something far more reliable than following your heart. And that's following Christ. Looking to the God we can now call our Father. Trusting Him, not trusting ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, this day, this opportunity to worship you. And on the one hand, it's hard to read scripture that gives us an honest assessment of our hearts. We're often taught to look at our hearts as pure and wise and always knowing the right thing and always having the right instincts and always pursuing the right objects. But it's simply not the case. But Lord, thank you that in the same Scripture, where we read about the sorry state of our hearts and of ourselves, we also have these promises that you've given us to, to help our hearts, to heal our hearts, to change our hearts, to give us new hearts that love you and worship you. The kinds of hearts that will actually produce joy, that will actually produce meaning, will actually produce truth rather than counterfeits and fool's gold. And so, Lord, help us to love the right things. Help us to know the right things, want the right things, desire the right things, care about the right things. And again, that can only happen if you change our hearts. We thank you that you have done that so much when people place their faith in Jesus Christ. We can think of so many examples of people who you talk to them and their hearts are just different than they ever were before. And it's because you've changed them. It's because you've justified them. It's because you've matured them. And so, Lord, I pray that for those of us who do believe in you, that you would continue maturing our hearts and helping our hearts look more like yours. And for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would take advantage of the offer that you give, that they too can have new hearts, new minds, new lives by faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that we are not condemned and resigned to sin and punishment and judgment and condemnation, but that you have a heart for sinners and that you save us through your son. So, Lord, help our hearts find rest as we find rest in you. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.